Our passage this morning comes from Genesis chapter 2, verse 4 through 13, or 17. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the, the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man from dust, from the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God had planted a garden in Eden in the east. There he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge and good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first river is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold in that land is good. Belium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. And it is the one that flowed from the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray together. God, this morning we're thankful to come together corporately. We get beat up all week long and we're so quick to forget and so we're grateful to come together and be encouraged by fellowship, encouraging one another in the word. We're encouraged by hearing the voices of your saints sing your praises encouraged to belt it out ourselves and we come here reminding ourselves who you are and what you've done on our behalf whose we are and so we come here as a thankful people and if we're not we confess that we should be and we ask that you would help us to leave here as a grateful people and God we're thankful that there hasn't been an upsurge in uh, the virus in terms of people getting back to normal and schools getting back we're grateful that Normalcy is returning. We're grateful for the, the freedom and privilege to gather and honor you. God, we're thankful for the new life this week for Everett Beecham. We're thankful for a healthy baby, healthy mama. We pray for Cole and Jess, God, that you'd give them grace as they learn a new normal with their first child in the home. We pray for his salvation today. We pray that you would save him very, very early in his life. We pray that he would not know a time as he grows that he didn't love the Lord Jesus Christ. And God, we have an opportunity in our country with a new Supreme Court justice. So we ask that you would lead the appointment of a pro-life judge, that we can make movements against the evil of abortion in our nation. And God, as we gather here and we open your book, we ask you to do what you love to do, what you promised to do, and that is sanctify your people by the truth. Your word is truth. 
The grass withers, the flower fades, but your word will endure forever. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. Good to see you. If you haven't been with us, we've been in this series in the first three chapters of Genesis. Be here for about 12 weeks. I think this is week four or five, something like that. What have we seen? Well, we've seen that God is the creator of all things, heaven and earth. We've seen that he's created people and he's created us in his image to represent him on earth. We've seen that he's created male and female and what all that means. And we've seen our calling and our commission. We called it the cultural mandate. And then last week we saw the promise and the, the beginnings of the promises of rest that we ultimately find in Jesus Christ and his finished work. So now we're going to dip into chapter 2. We've covered chapter 1. I mentioned last week we've actually got a bad chapter break. Chapter 1 really ends in chapter 2, verse 3. So this morning we're going to look at chapter 2, verse 4 and following. In chapter 1 and chapter 2, they're complementary perspectives. They're not contradictory. They have different vantage points. Chapter 1, all it said about mankind was that God made us in his image. And chapter 2 now is going to zoom in to the creation of man, next week woman, and going to flesh it out for us, literally flesh it out. And here again, we're reminded that God created us, his people, as the crown of creation. Creates the stuff, and then he creates the people. And here we are, created last, and then given, given delegation, all the rest of the created order. There is a striking earth-centeredness to the universe. There's just no way to get around that fact. Calvin said that God made everything with man in mind. As the intelligent design biologists like to say, it's as if the earth knew we were coming. Because of course it did. First, the creation of man. Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the, heaven, the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature." This little phrase here in verse 4, these are the generations. It actually occurs 11 times throughout the book of Genesis. The whole, the whole book really is structured around these are the generations, these are the generations. And so these generations, these genealogies, they form the structure. In fact, the Old Testament in the Greek version says Genesis. It's where we get the name of the book. And if we had been reading carefully, we would notice a little shift from chapter 1 to chapter 2. Namely, that the way God is referred to has changed. In chapter 1, it's just the Lord. But here in chapter 2, we see the Lord God. There's a shift from Elohim to Elohim Yahweh. Well, what's that about? Well, Moses here is, knows the whole history of the Pentateuch, right? And so he wants to remind his people of who this creator God is. So there's a shift to a more personal nature. In chapter 1, he's just the creator of all things. In chapter 2, he's the covenant-making and covenant-keeping redeemer God. Yes, he's the God of all the whole world, but he's also the God of Israel. He's beyond us and outside of us, transcendent, yet he's full of mercy and grace, and he's near us. This name becomes significant in Exodus 3 when God says, who am I going to tell the, who am I going to tell the people you are? And he says, I am who I am. 
tell them the Lord, Yahweh. Anytime you have Lord, L-O-R-D, capitalized in your Old Testament, it's Yahweh. It's his personal name that he's revealed. And the terminology here used about the created order, this bush of the field, or maybe your translation says shrub or small plants, it's actually different terminology than was used in chapter 1 on day 3. This here is the untended creation, the untended condition of the earth, I should say, which needs a man to come in order and subdue it. And so that's exactly what God does. He forms the man, Adam, ha-adamah, from the ground. Sorry, Adam is ha-adam, the ground is ha-adamah. Really similar language, right? Because the man is created from the earth for the earth. The man of dust is the image of God. Those of you who studied anatomy and physiology know just how significant this is. The human body is amazing. You could really pick any organ and examine it, and it is a thing of beauty. Right now, Alicia's all her favorite subjects, uh, anatomy. And so even this week, she was just geeking about, out about lungs and, and lung capacity and how God has designed everything. And it truly is amazing, isn't it? I mean, then he built this cage, this built-in cage to protect all that that we need. Or maybe the, the complexity of the human eyeball. Amazing. It gave Darwin the shutters. The way the knee functions. The fact that our noses are not upside down, because that would be a bummer on rainy days. <laughs> the balance, either the big toe or the pinky toe provides. Those of you who broke them know how, just, how necessary those things are. God breathes it all into a pile of dirt. <laughs> I love the way the psalmist just gloats over the way God has created. Listen to Psalm 139. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them crown of creation. Human beings are the glory of creation. But this also reminds us of our lowly origins, doesn't it? <laughs> we're, we're not angelic beings. We come from the grounds. As Isaiah and Jeremiah both say, we are the clay. He is the potter. One of the core truths of the Christian faith is what we could call the creator-creature distinction. He is God. We are not. So we have the creation of Adam, and then quickly we move in. He forms a garden for him, the garden temple of Eden. Look at chapter 2, verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers. Name of the first is the Pishon. It's the, it's the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bellum and Onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gahan. It's the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. Name of the third river is the Tigris which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. So he builds the garden of Eden. Eden just means delight. It's paradise. 
As best we can tell, this garden was in the area of Mesopotamia around the head of the, the Persian Gulf. But with the worldwide flood in Genesis 6, we really don't know for sure. We know two of these rivers. We can't identify the other two. We know the garden was on the east end, east area of Eden. And God puts man in the garden as well as all kinds of pretty trees and, and nourishing trees and two special trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this garden is the source of life to other regions of the world. Rivers flow from it. And they're precious stones all around. See, Moses wants to show the glory of God's presence through the beauty of what God has created. Moses wants to show the glory of God's presence through the beauty of the physical surroundings, which, by the way, is why Christians historically have cared so much about aesthetics. Remember, God created out of nothing. Ex nihilo. There was nothing there. His canvas was blank and he goes to work. I don't think we reflect on it nearly enough, right? He could have created everything like a, a drab gray color and everything tastes like, I don't know, oatmeal without sugar and honey. But he didn't. Look at what he's done. He could have done anything he wanted to do. And so you see the beauty and the creativity of the world. So beauty matters. Beauty matters. Baptists have been historically pretty bad at beauty. <laughs> we tend to buy, even like our church buildings, right? We'll tend to do the black box. And it looks like a factory instead of a church building, right? I love to go to older areas, even just in this country, and go to the Northeast. Uh, there's a Presbyterian church in Pittsburgh that is amazing. We just have not done it very well. Our Catholic friends and Episcopalian friends tend to do beauty a little bit better. Uh, we're, uh, this is not a terrible room, but it's not beautiful, and we're trying to think of ways that we can make it better. And one of the things we want is we want more natural lighting in this room. There's been a movement, uh, and it always ebbs and flows, but there's been a movement just to make it all dark, right? We don't want to do that. We want the lights on because worship is not about you and the Lord. This is a corporate worship service. That's what the Word teaches too. Ephesians 5, Colossians 3 say that we sing to the Lord, yes, but it also says we sing to one another. And so when we come together, it's not just me and the Lord, let's black it out so I don't see anyone else. No, this is a corporate congregation singing and encouraging one another. And man, let me just say, y'all do it so well. Favorite time of the week. So anyway, we want more natural lighting, but these can't, we can't lift these because it's too bright. Like there's a little section right here that would just be totally blinded probably during, well, during some point in the morning. And so we looked at, you know, what if we put in some stained glass? Let's not get anything like super intricate, no images, just some big chunks of stained glass. Wouldn't that make this place look amazing? Make it look churchy, bring churchy back. We priced it out. The first bid we brought back was $177,000 for these windows right here. So I thought, you know what? I think we're going to stick with the Baptist black box look. We'll just go there. But Christians ought to be the best artists around because we serve the creator of creativity, the creator of beauty. And this garden was beautiful. And something we need to see too, this garden was actually a temple. You know what a temple is? A temple is the house of God. A temple is where God dwells in a special way. God's present everywhere, but he dwells in a special way in his temple. That's why the Bible often calls the temple the, the footstool of the Lord. You ever think about that imagery? Our God is in the heavens. But his footstool, he rests his feet in the temple. The temple is the place that heaven and earth connect. 
The temple is the place that heaven and earth unite, and that's where the king rules from. That's where the king rests from. So Eden should be seen as the first temple. It's a divine sanctuary. It's the place where God walks around. It's the place of his unique presence. We're going to see it's the place of the first priest. Eden is the place where the first cherubim is put outside to guard in Genesis 3, which is the same thing that happened as the building of the tabernacle later in the story. And then the temple, they had cherubim. They all faced eastward. Eden, tabernacle, temple. Temple had precious metals and stones. Tons of parallels between what we see here in this description of the Garden of Eden and then the tabernacle and then ultimately the temple. And then the prophets pick up the imagery. We sing about it. When you meet me at gates at gold, it will be paradise, your face forever to behold. The prophets speak of the future of eternity of the new earth in Edenic terms. Part of redemption is God's bringing us back. He's restoring. He's reversing the curse. So listen to the way Isaiah puts it. The Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden. Her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her thanksgiving and the voice of song. And then the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, describes the new heavens and the new earth. The whole thing is a temple now. The whole world's a temple. The whole world now is filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea and the tree of life is in the middle of it. The whole thing, the whole city is there. So he creates Eden. And now there's work to do. Get verse 15, Genesis chapter 2. The Lord God took the man... And put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So he creates the domain, he creates his people, and now he tasks them to work. The man is formed from the earth for the earth, out of the earth to cultivate the earth. And remember, this is before the fall. Work is God's will before sin. We've got to remember that. It's a good part of God's created will. Now, it's hard because of sin. It's cursed. That's why all of us in our work have frustrations. But that doesn't mean work's not a good thing. It's just tainted by sin like every other area of life. We'll see that in chapter 3. Look at chapter 3, verse 17, where we have a result of sin. How it's described specifically to the man, to Adam. He said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you should not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. Now work is really hard. It was a delight. Now it's cursed. But what we're talking about right now in Genesis chapter 2 is before that. It's before the fall. And these two verbs, work and keep, are often used independently all over the Old Testament to speak of serving the Lord. Work could be served. And so there's tons of passages where this verb in Hebrews is to serve the Lord. And this verb keep is often used in the Hebrew Bible to speak of keeping the commandments of God. What does that tell us? It tells us that our work is serving the Lord. In fact, one translation says this work and keep should be translated worship and obey. 
Everything we do, we're to have a Godward focus. God has called us to have dominion in whatever sphere of life he's given us. Bringing his rule to bear, whatever you're doing, in the good of our neighbor. Remember the sermon, Make Babies, Make Culture? It's the cultural mandate, Genesis 128. Take a look at it. This is the first item on the human job description. God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is what we're called to. And it looks different for almost every person in this room. Build families and build culture. Let me share with you this Nancy Piercy quote again just because it's worth repeating. She says, the first phrase, be fruitful and multiply, means to develop the social worlds, build families and churches and schools and cities and governments and laws. The second phrase, subdue the earth, means to harness the natural world, plant crops and build bridges and design computers and compose music. This passage is sometimes called the cultural mandate because it tells us that our original purpose was to create cultures, build civilizations, nothing less. This is what we're called to do. Now, zoom out. I mean, some of us, it's, it's hard to, if we were newcomers to this passage, zoom out. What's he saying here? God creates the world. God creates us. And what is the purpose of human beings? To work on his behalf, to serve him. That's why we exist, friends. And God here creates with great care and planning and provision and precision so that we might have the capacities to serve him and serve him through our work. Our work matters. Our work is significant. Christians should not be those who are merely working for the weekends. We ought to have a God-entranced vision of our work. If your only relation and reference to the Lord is Sundays and maybe a quiet time, hopefully family worship, that's still way too small. How can you bring God into the day-to-day, the Monday through Friday? Think of your work in the ways it benefits people in four ways. First, God, we've mentioned that. Second, neighbor. Third, your family if you have one or your future family if you're called to that. And fourth, finally, yourself. So first we work for God. So what we see right here, Genesis 1, called to serve him, keep his commandments. Colossians 3.23, work with all your heart as working for the Lord and not for man. At the end of the day, who's your boss? The Lord is. And so we work hard for him, for all that he's done for us, not to gain a position, but from a position. And we work with excellence. We ought to be the best employers and the best employees because, again, we're ultimately working for the Lord. We ought to do good work, and we ought to be known for that. Would it be that Southside could gain a reputation of being some of the best workers in the city? Oh, they're at Southside. Let's hire them. Luther said the first call of a Christian cobbler shoemaker is to make excellent shoes not make shoddy shoes and put little crosses on them we should work hard we should seek to gain influence and use that influence for the lord take dominion for his sake proverbs 22:29 you see a man skillful in his work he will stand before kings He will not stand before obscure men. We want influence. We want a wider platform, not for our own sake, 
our own reputation, our own money, but for the sake of the kingdom, taking ground for him and for the good of our neighbors. That's the second one. We work for God. We work for our neighbor. You know, God doesn't need our good works. We're justified, declared in the right by faith and faith alone. But our neighbors do need our good works. That's what we're called to. This is a theology of vocation. God takes care of his world and his people through human vocations. You think about your work in these terms. It's really an enlightening and a freeing vision of what you're called to do. In Luther's commentary on Genesis, he said, God himself milks the cows through the vocation of the milkmaid. How does God provide milk? Through milkmaids. God is active in this world through our work. That's what we see in Genesis 1. What is the purpose of mankind? To rule on his behalf. And so God is working and ruling and subduing and creating order through us. He works through means. He never just does it. Rarely, rarely does he just do it. He works through means. And that's why he created us. We are his means. You know, we pray in the Lord's Prayer. At least we should be praying the Lord's Prayer. Part of the prayer is give us this day our daily bread. How often for us in America especially does God give us daily bread? Every day, right? Does he drop the manna from heaven? He doesn't in my house. What does he do? God provides your daily bread through the grain farmer and the baker, and the truck driver, and the grocery stalker, and then the grocery clerk. I'm probably missing a few steps because I'm not a bread guy. He provides his bread to his people through a host of human vocations. Our work is the mask of God. He hides behind the bread man and the bread truck driver to provide bread. As his people pray, we're created in his image to rule, subdue, and work on his behalf for the good of our neighbor. That's the second way. Third, for the sake of your family. If you have a family or if you're called to a family, we work for our family, right? First Timothy 5 is pretty harsh about the man in particular, the man who will not provide for his family. It says he has, listen to this, a man's not providing for his family. I think that means food, shelter, clothing. He says that man who won't do that has denied the Christian faith <laughs> and is worse than an unbeliever, 1 Timothy 5. So we provide for our family. That's part of our work. It's not the only part, but it's certainly part of it. So we work hard to provide for them. And Proverbs 13, says, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. So fourth, we work for our own good. And the point here is that we need to work. We're created to work. Work is good for us. Whether it's raising kids, changing diapers, teaching kids, fixing cars, running numbers, managing people, building houses, coaching athletes, scrubbing toilets, whatever it is, work is good for us. Idleness is the devil's playgrounds. The Proverbs rebuke the sluggard on every other page. Work's really important. Paul says that if someone wants work, they shouldn't eat. Shouldn't be busy bodies. We should be busy at work and we shouldn't be dependent upon anyone. So fourth, we work for our own well-being because that's what we're created to do. God, neighbor, family, our own good. Called to subdue, rule for the glory of God and the good of others. So zooming out, what do we, what do we have here? Genesis 1, job description of mankind. Adam's called to fill the world. Now, is he going to do that by himself? He's going to have a little trouble. Cliffhanger for next week's sermon. He needs a helper. Genesis 2.18. 
He's called to fill it. He's called to rule. He's called to work. He's called to keep for God's glory and the good of others. But let me share something cool with you. These two verbs, work and keep, they only happen together in one other context in the whole Bible. Work and keep, together. Right here in this context with Adam in the garden temple, and then in context where the priests are at work, in the temple, priests work and keep. Let me just give you a couple of examples. I could give you many, but let me give you two. Numbers 3, 7, and 8. About the priests. Say this, they shall keep, there's the word, shamar, they shall keep guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tents of meeting as they serve, work, minister, same word, avad, at the tabernacle. They shall guard, there it is, keep, shamar, all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and keep guard over the people of Israel as they work, serve, minister, same word, at the tabernacle. So priests are those who work and keep, guard and protect, serve, caring for sacred space. Listen to Numbers chapter 8. The priests, they minister to their brothers in the tent of meeting by keeping, there it is, guard, but they shall do no service. That's the word for work. Thus shall you do to the Levites in assigning their duties. So in other words, who are the people in the Bible that work and keep? They're the priests who serve the garden, but Adam also works and keeps the garden temple because Adam is the first priest, caring for sacred space, called to guard it, work and keep the garden temple. We saw a couple weeks ago he's called to rule and have dominion. Well, who rules? Kings. He's also got this kingly function. So Adam's not only a priest, he's a king. He's the first priest king here in the garden of God. Not only that, though, he's a prophet. He's a prophet, priest, and king. Why? Because he receives the word of God in our next verse, verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God says, hey, eat any of the trees of the garden. There's only one tree that's forbidden. One no in an ocean of yeses. I mentioned last week, that's a pretty good principle for how we parent. We ought to have an ocean of yeses as parents and a few clear noes. We ought not to be those saying no all the time. We've only got five in our house. They're pretty comprehensive, though. No whining. No provoking. Obey all the way right away with a willing heart. Always honest. And never disrespect your mama. Five clear prohibitions, and then the rest is go. We want that. An ocean of yeses, well, no, and that's what God has here. An ocean of yeses. He's so generous. He just has one clear prohibition. It says, if you disobey me here, you shall surely die. Eat of any tree, but not this one. Not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Which, of course, are moral categories, aren't they? Good and evil. They're ethical categories. God built this tree to show them what right is and what wrong is, but they can't determine it. God's the one who determines what's right and wrong. They must discover it. It's not in themselves. It's not in experience. It's not in culture. It's in God's word. They need revelation. He's the one who tells what is right and wrong. This is not for mankind to determine. Very countercultural, isn't it? I just feel 
I, I, I. No, no, what did God say about the matter? I did it my way. That's the anthem of hell. In other words, they're not to be autonomous people. Autos namos, self-ruler. They're not to be self-ruling people. They're to be God-ruled people. Ruled by God and his word. Submitting to him and what he says is good or bad, right or wrong. One author says this. As it stood, prohibited, it presented the alternative to discipleship. To be self-made. Resting one's knowledge, satisfaction, and values from the created world in defiance of the creator. Here's what you have here. The first act of autonomy. God says, you can surely eat of any of the tree. Eat of the one, you shall surely die. And so here, death is introduced into God's good world for the first time. Disobedience leads to death. That's why we just read in those curses. You came from dust to dust, you shall return. And of course, it includes eventual physical death. They began to die at that moment. But more than that, it's spiritual death as well. It's why we die. Children, this would be a really good verse to memorize. Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We earn wages, don't we? The wages of sin is death. We have earned death because of our sin. Death is not natural. There's nothing natural about death. No one dies of natural causes. Only people die of sin. Now, today they die of COVID, right? Regardless, man eaten by great white shark dies of COVID-19. But ultimately, there is one cause of every death, and it's sin. So Romans 5 puts it, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sins. Death exists because of sin, because of our rebellion, and we've all sinned, and so we are all going to die. Ten out of ten die. There's two certainties, taxes and death. And we don't want to talk about it. We try to avoid it. We try to fight against it in any way we can. But it's coming. There's something about not really being ready to live until you've grappled with your own mortality. You're not fearful of death anymore. I just ask you, are you ready to die? Are you ready to meet your maker? You know you can be. Christians are those who are. Christians are those who have made peace with God through the cross of Christ. Christians are those who are ready. Death no longer has sting. We're not fearful of it. We can even be desirous to meet our maker. That's where Paul is, right? Philippians chapter one. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. You know what he says there? My desire is to die. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. Why? Because that's far better. He loves the Lord so much, he's ready to be there. He's tired of this fallen world, so his desires to be there. That can be you, friend. You see, Adam was our representative, and he sinned. He blew it. He felled us as the first prophet, priest, and king. But Romans 5 tells us that Adam was a type 
of one who was to come. Adam was one who pointed forward to another representative, another prophet, priest, and king, a second Adam, a better Adam, a last Adam. Listen to Romans chapter 5, comparing these two Adams. The free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more had the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. That means to be declared in the right. That means to have your sins fully forgiven through faith and faith alone. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. We serve a true and better Adam. Listen to 1 Corinthians 15. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. You don't know the Lord, you can move from being in Adam to being in Christ through faith and repentance. Turn from your sin, turn to the Lord. Transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved Son. And so turn to Him and have your sins forgiven, taken away. Grace alone through faith alone, and then give your life to Him. Give your life spent and be spent for the sake of him, bringing whatever domain he's given you. You're a steward of what he's given you. You'll spend your life bringing his rule to bear in whatever domain you have, whatever sphere you have. Show the world. Be a model what it looks like to live under the rule of King Jesus. Heart to hands, cradle to the grave, all of life, all of Christ for all of life until he returns and he establishes Eden 2.0. Let's be faithful till that day. Let's pray. God, we give you praise as the author of beauty. God, would you, would you wake us up and not, us, not let us be so slumbered about how glorious your created order is? From the smallest insects to West Texas skies to our own bodies and the way you've designed them to work so well, so incredibly well for many, many decades. And may it fuel our creativity. May you raise up Christian artists. May we do some of the best art around, God. And would you give us robust vision for our work? Maybe we struggle to see it in your economy. Maybe we need to move jobs. Would you lead and guide and open doors? But would you give us insight into how to see our work as significant, to see how we can honor you in it, but also help others be a means of your help? Give us intentionality and vision to work on your behalf, to see our work as bringing your rule to bear in whatever you've given us. 
Give us vision. Would you be our vision? And God, we're thankful that you've provided a faithful prophet, a faithful priest, and a faithful king, one who was the word of God, one who completely obeyed the word of God on our behalf, one who taught the word of God with clarity and conviction, shows us the way to you, shows us the good life, but also not just a faithful prophet. You've given us, unlike Adam, a faithful king, one who is ruling and reigning right now at your right hand. He has all authority. One day everyone will see it and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We're thankful for a faithful priest. One who intercedes on our behalf and one who atoned for our sin. Weak and sinful though we are, enemies though we were, you have brought us to yourself through the cross and resurrection of Jesus. Thank you. May you receive our praise as we finish our service. May you receive our praise as we go to work tomorrow. For the fame of King Jesus, we pray. Amen.